Chapter Five of Strange Pages from Family Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Strange Pages from Family Papers by T. F. Thistleton Dyer. Chapter Five: Mysterious Rooms. A jolly place," said he, in days of old, "but something ails it now. The spot is cursed." Wordsworth. A peculiar feature of many old country houses is the so-called strange room, around which the atmosphere of mystery has long clung. In certain cases, such rooms have gained an unenviable notoriety for having been the scene, in days gone by, of some tragic occurrence. The memory of which has survived in the local legend or tradition. The existence too of such rooms has supplied the novelist with the most valuable material for the construction of those plots in which the mysterious element holds a prominent place. Historical romance again, with its tales of adventure, has invested numerous rooms with a grim aspect and caused the imagination to conjure up all manner of weird and unearthly fancies concerning them. Walpole, for instance. Writing of Berkeley Castle says, "The room shown for the murder of Edward the Second, and the shrieks of an agonizing king, I verily believe to be genuine. It is a dismal chamber, almost at the top of the house, quite detached, and to be approached only by a kind of footbridge, and from that descends a large flight of steps that terminates on strong gates, exactly a situation for a corps de garde." And speaking of Edward's imprisonment here. May be mentioned the pathetic stories told by Sir Richard Baker in his usual odd, circumstantial manner. When Edward the Second was taken by order of his queen and carried to Berkeley Castle to the end that he should not be known, they shaved his head and beard, and that in a most beastly manner. For they took him from his horse and set him upon a hillock, and then taking puddle water out of a ditch thereby, they went to wash him. His barber telling him that the cold water must serve for this time. Whereat the miserable king, looking sternly upon him, said that whether they would or no, he would have warm water to wash him, and therewithal, to make good his word, he presently shed forth a shower of tears. Never was king turned out of a kingdom in such a manner. And there can be no doubt that many of the rooms which have attracted notice on account of their architectural peculiarities were purposely designed for concealment in times of political commotion. Of the numerous stories told of the mysterious death of Lord Lovell, one informs us how, on the demolition of a very old house, formerly the patrimony of the Lovells, about a century ago there was found in a small chamber so secret that the farmer who inhabited the house knew it not the remains of an immured being and such remnants of bowels and jars as appeared to justify the idea of that chamber having been used as a place of refuge for the lord of the mansion. And that after consuming the stores which he had provided in case of a disastrous event, he died unknown even to his servants and tenants. But the circumstances attending Lord Lovell's death have always been a matter of conjecture, and in the annals of England another version of the story is given. Lord Lovell is believed to have escaped from the field, and to have lived for a while in concealment at Minster Lovell, Oxfordshire, but at length to have been starved to death through the neglect. Or treachery of an attendant. At Broughton Castle, there is a curiously designed room which, at one time or another, has attracted considerable attention. According to Lord Nungant in his Memorials of Hampton, this room is so contrived by being surrounded by thick stone walls 
and case-matted that no sound from within can be heard. The chamber appears to have been built about the time of King John, and is reported, on very doubtful grounds of tradition, to have been the room used for the sittings of the Puritans. And, he adds, it seems an odd fancy, although a very prevailing one, to suppose that wise men, employed in capital matters of state, must needs choose the most mysterious and superstitious retirements for consultation, instead of the safer and less remarkable expedient of a walk in the open fields. It was probably in this room that the secret meetings of Hampton and his confederates were held, which Antonia Wood thus describes. Several years before the Civil War began, Lord Sage, being looked upon as the godfather of that party, had meetings of them in his house at Broughton, where was a room and passage thereunto, which his servants were prohibited to come near. And when they were of a complete number, there would be a great noise and talkings heard among them, to the admiration of those that lived in the house, yet never could they discern their lord's companions. Amongst other secret rooms, which have their historical associations, are those at Hendlip Hall, near Worcester. This famous residence, which has scarcely a room that is not provided with some means of escape, is commonly reported to have been built by John Abingdon in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, this personage having been a zealous partisan of Mary Queen of Scots. It was here also, under the care of Mr. and Mrs. Abingdon, that Father Garnet was concealed for several weeks in the winter of 1605-6, to but who eventually paid the penalty of his guilty knowledge of the gunpowder plot. A hollow in the wall of Mrs. Abingdon's bedroom was covered up, and there was a narrow crevice into which a reed was laid, so that soup and wine could be passed by her into the recess, without the fact being noticed from any other room. But the government, suspecting that some of the gunpowder conspirators were concealed at Hendlip Hall, sent Sir Henry Bromley of Holt Castle, a justice of the peace, with the most minute orders, which are very funny. In the search, says the document, First observe the parlour, where they used to dine and sup. In the last part of that parlour it is conceived there is some vault, which to discover you must take care to draw down the wainscot, whereby the entry into the vault may be discovered. The lower parts of the house must be tried with a brooch, by putting the same into the ground some foot or two, to try whether there may be perceived some timber, which, if there be, there must be some vault beneath it. For the upper rooms you must observe whether they be more in breadth than the lower rooms, and look in which places the rooms must be enlarged. By pulling out some boards you may discover some vaults. Also, if it appear that there be some corners to the chimneys, and the same boarded, if the boards be taken away, there will appear some secret place. If the walls seem to be thick and covered with wainscot, being tried with a gimlet, if it strike not the wall but go through, some suspicion is to be had thereof. If there be any double loft, some two or three feet, one above another, in such places any person may be harboured privately. Also, if there be a loft towards the roof of the house, into which there appears no entrance out of any other place or lodging, it must, of necessity, be opened and looked into, for these be ordinary places of hovering, hiding. The house was searched from garret to cellar, without any discovery being made and Mrs. Abingdon, feigning to be angry with the searchers, shut herself up in her bedroom day and night, eating and drinking there, by which means, through the secret tube, she fed Father Garnet and another Jesuit father. But after a protracted search of ten days, these two men surrendered themselves, pressed, it is said, 
for the need of air rather than food, for marmalade and other sweetmeats were found in their den, and they had warm and nutritive drinks passed to them by the reed through the chimney, as already described. This historic mansion, it may be added, on account of its elevated position, was capitally adapted as a place of concealment, for it afforded the means of keeping a watchful lookout for the approach of the emissaries of the law, or of other persons, by whom it might have been dangerous for any skulking priest to be seen, supposing his reverence to have gone forth for an hour to take the air. Another important instance of a strange room is that existing at Ingateston Hall, in Essex, which was in years gone by a summer residence belonging to the Abbey of Barking. It came with the estate into possession of the family of Petri in the reign of Henry VIII, and continued to be occupied as their family seat until the latter half of the last century. In the southeast corner of a small room attached to what was probably the host's bedroom, there was discovered some years ago a mysterious hiding place, fourteen feet long, two feet broad, and ten feet high. On some floorboards being removed, a hole or trap door about two feet square was found, with a twelve-foot ladder to descend into the room below, the floor of which was composed of nine inches of dry sand. This, on being examined, brought to light a few bones, which, it has been suggested, are the remains of food supplied to some unfortunate occupant during confinement. But the existence of this secret room must, it is said, have been familiar to the heads of the family for several generations, evidence of this circumstance being afforded by a packing-case which was found in this hidden retreat, and upon which was the following direction for the Right Honourable the Lady Petrie at Ingateston Hall in Essex. The wood, also, was in a decayed state, and the writing in an antiquated style, which is only what might be expected, considering that the Petrie family left Ingateston Hall between the years 1770 and 1780. There are numerous rooms of this curious description, which, it must be remembered, were in many cases the outcome of religious intolerance in the 16th century, and early in the 17th when the celebration of Mass in this country was forbidden. Hence those families that persisted in adhering to the Roman Catholic faith oftentimes kept a priest, who celebrated it in a room, opening whence was a secret one, to which in case of emergency he could retreat. Evelyn, in his diary, speaking of Ham House at Weybridge, belonging to the Duke of Norfolk, as having some of these secret rooms, writes, My lord, leading me about the house, made no scruple of showing me all the hiding-places for popish priests, and where they said mass, for he was no bigoted papist. The old manor-house at Dinsdale-upon-Tees has a secret room, which is very cleverly situated at the top of the staircase, to which access is gained from above. The compartment is not very large, and is between two bedrooms, and alongside the fireplace of one of them. It would be a very snug place when the fire was lighted, writes a correspondent of notes and queries and very secure, as it is necessary to enter the cockloft by a trap-door at the extreme end of the building, and then crawl along under the roof into the hiding-place by a second trap-door. Among further instances of these curious relics of the past may be mentioned Armscot Manor, two or three miles distant from Shipston-on-Stour. According to a local tradition, George Fox at one time lived here. In a passage at the top of the house is the entrance to a secret room, which receives light from a small window in one of the gables, and in this room George Fox is said to have been concealed during the period he was persecuted by the county magistrates. But sometimes such rooms furthered the designs of those who abetted and connived at deeds that would not bear the light. 
and Southey records an anecdote which is a good illustration of the bad use to which they were probably often put. At Bishop's Middleham, a man died with the reputation of a water-drinker, and it was discovered that he had killed himself by secret drunkenness. There was a Roman Catholic hiding-place, the entrance to which was from his bedroom. He converted it into a cellar, and the quantity of brandy which he had consumed was ascertained. Indeed, it is impossible to say to what ends these secret rooms were occasionally devoted, and there is little doubt but that they were the scenes of many of those thrilling stories upon which many of our local traditions have been founded. Political refugees, too, were not infrequently secreted in these hiding-places, and in the manor-house Trent, near Sherborne, there is a strangely constructed chamber, entered from one of the upper rooms through a sliding panel in the oak wainscoting, in which, tradition tells us, Charles II lay concealed for a fortnight on his escape to the coast, after the Battle of Worcester, and Baskerbell House, which also afforded Charles II a safe retreat, has two secret chambers, and there are indications which point to the former existence of a third. The hiding-place in which the king was hidden is situated in the squire's bedroom. It appears there was formerly a sliding panel in the wainscot near the fireplace, which, when opened, gave access to a closet, the false floor of which still admits of a person taking up his position in the secret nook. The wainscoting, too, which concealed the movable panel in the bedroom, was originally covered with tapestry, with which the room was hung. A curious story is told of Street Place, an old house a mile and a half north of Plumpton, in the neighbourhood of Lewis, which dates from the time of James I, and was the seat of the Dobells. Behind the great chimney-piece of the hall was a deep recess, used for purposes of concealment, and it is said that one day a cavalier horseman, hotly pursued by some troopers, broke into the hall, spurred his horse into the recess, and disappeared for ever. Bistmorton Court, an old moated manor-house in the Malvern district, has a cunningly contrived secret room, which is opened by means of a spring, and this hidden nook is commonly reported to have played an important part in the War of the Roses, when numerous persons were concealed there at this troublous period. And a curious discovery was made some years ago at Danby Hall in Wensleydale, Yorkshire, when, on a small secret room being brought to light, it was found to contain arms and saddlery for a troop of forty or fifty horse. It is generally supposed that these weapons had been hidden away in readiness for the Jacobite rising of 1715 or 1745. In certain cases it would appear that, for some reason or other, the hiding place has been specially kept a secret among members of the family. In the north of England there is Netherall, near Maryport, Cumberland, the seat of the old family of Senhouse. In this old mansion there is said to be a veritable secret room, its exact position in the house being known but to two persons, the heir-at-law and the family solicitor. It is affirmed that never has the secret of this hidden room been revealed to more than two living persons at a time. This mysterious room has no window, and despite every endeavour to discover it, has successfully defied the ingenuity of even visitors staying in the house. This Netherall tradition is very similar to the celebrated one connected with Glamis Castle, the seat of Lord Strathmore, only in the latter case the secret room possesses a window, which, nevertheless, has not led to its identification. It is known as the secret room of the castle, and although every other part of the castle has been satisfactorily explored, the search for this famous room has been in vain. None are supposed to be acquainted with its locality, save Lord Strathmore, his heir, and the factor of the estate, 
who were bound not to reveal it, unless to their successors in the secret. Many weird stories have clustered around this remarkable room, one legend connected with which has been thus described. The castle now again behold, then mark yon lofty turret bold, which frowns above the western wing, its grim walls darkly shadowing. There is a room within that tower no mortal dare approach. The power of an avenging god is there. Dread, awfully displayed, beware, and enter not that dreadful room, else yours may be a fearful doom. According to one legendary romance, founded on an incident which is said to have occurred during one of the carousals of the Earl of Crawford, otherwise styled Earl Beardy, or the Tiger Earl, there was many years ago a grand meet at Glamis, as the result of which many a noble deer lay dead upon the hill, and many a grisly boar died with his heart's blood the rivers of the plain. As the day drew to its close, the wearied huntsmen with their fair attendants returned, midst the sound of martial music and the low whispered roundelays of the ladies, victorious to the castle. In the old baronial dining-hall was spread a sumptuous and savoury feast, at which venison and reeking game, rich smoked ham and savoury roe, flanked by the wild boar's head, and viands and pasties without name, lent profusely on the hospitable board, while jewelled and capacious goblets, filled with ruby wine, were lavishly handed round to the admiring guests. At the completion of the banquet, the minstrel strung his ancient harp, and soon the company tripped lightly on the oaken floor, till the rafters rang with the merry sounds of their midnight revelry. For three days and nights the hunt and the feast continued, and as, at last, the revelries drew to a close, Still four dark chieftains remained in the inner chamber of the castle, and sang and drank and shouted right merrily. The day broke, yet louder rang the wassail roar. The goblets were over and over again replenished, and the terrible oaths and ribald songs continued, and the dice rattled, and the revelry became louder still, till the many walls of the old castle shook and reverberated with the awful sounds of debauchery, blasphemy, and crime. At length their wild, ungovernable frenzy reached its climax. They had drunk until their eyes had grown dim and their hands could scarcely hold the hellish dice, when, driven by expiring fury, with fiendish glee they defiantly gnashed their teeth and cursed the God of Heaven. Then, with returning strength and exhausting its last and fitful energies in still louder imprecations and more fearful yells, they deliberately and with unanimous voice consigned their guilty souls to the nethermost hell. Fatal words! In a bright, broad sheet of lurid and sulphurous flame the Prince of Darkness appeared in their midst, and struck not the shaft of death, but the vitality of eternal life. And there, to this day, in that dreaded room, they sit, transfixed in all their hideous expressions of ghastly terror and dismay, doomed to drink the wine-cup, and throw the dice till the dawning of the great judgment day. Another explanation of the mystery is that during one of the feuds between the Lindsays and the Ogilvies, a number of the latter clan, flying from their enemies, came to Glamis Castle and begged hospitality of the owner. He admitted them, and on the plea of hiding them, he secured them all in this room, and then left them to starve. Their bones, it is adverred, lie there to this day, the sight of which it has been stated, so appalled the late Lord Strathmore on entering the room, that he had it walled up. Some assert that, owing to some hereditary curse, like those described in a previous chapter, at certain intervals a kind of vampire is born into the family of the Strathmore lions, and that, as no one would like to destroy this monstrosity, 
it is kept concealed till its term of life is run. But whatever the mystery may be, such rooms, like the locked chamber of Blue Beard, are not open to vulgar gaze, a circumstance which has naturally perpetuated the curiosity attached to them. The reputation, too, which Glamis Castle has long had for possessing so strange a room, has led to a host of the most gruesome stories being circulated in connection with it, many of which from time to time have appeared in print. According to one account, a lady, very well known in London society, an artistic and social celebrity, went to stay at Glamis Castle for the first time. She was allotted very handsome apartments, just on the point of junction between the new buildings, perhaps a hundred or two hundred years old, and the very ancient part of the castle. The rooms were handsomely furnished, no grim tapestry swung to and fro, all was smooth, easy and modern, and the guest retired to bed without a thought of the mysteries of Glamis. In the morning she appeared at the breakfast-table, cheerful and self-possessed, and to the inquiry how she had slept, replied, "'Well, thanks, very well. Up to four o'clock in the morning. But your Scottish carpenters seem to come to work very early. I suppose they are putting up their scaffolding quickly, though, for they are quiet now.' Her remarks were followed by a dead silence, and, to her surprise, she noticed that the faces of the family party were very pale. But she was asked, as she valued the friendship of all there, never to speak on that subject again. There had been no carpenters at Glamis for months past.' The lady, it seems, had not the remotest idea that the hammering she had heard was connected with any story, and had no notion of there being some mystery connected with the noise, until enlightened on the matter at the breakfast-table. At Russian Castle, Isle of Man, there is said to be a room which has never been opened in the memory of man. Various explanations have been assigned to account for this circumstance, one being that the old place was once inhabited by giants, who were dislodged by Merlin, and as such were not driven away, remaining spellbound beneath the castle. Waldron, in his description of the Isle of Man, has given a curious tradition respecting this strange room, in which the supernatural element holds a prominent place, and which is a good sample of other stories of the same kind. They say there are a great many fine apartments underground, exceeding in magnificence any of the upper rooms. Several men, of more than ordinary courage, have, in former times, ventured down to explore the secrets of this subterranean dwelling-place. But as none of them ever returned, to give an account of what they saw, the passages to it were kept continually shut, that no more might suffer by their temerity. But about fifty years since, a person of uncommon courage obtained permission to explore the dark abode. He went down and returned by the help of a clue of pack-thread, and made this report, that after having passed through a great number of vaults, he came into a long, narrow place, along which, having travelled as far as he could guess, for the space of a mile, he saw a little gleam of light. Reaching at last the end of this lane of darkness, he perceived a very large and magnificent house, illuminated with a great many candles, whence proceeded the light just mentioned. After knocking at the door three times, it was opened by a servant, who asked him what he wanted. "'I would go as far as I can,' he replied. "'Be so kind as to direct me, for I see no passage but the dark cavern through which I came hither.' The servant directed him to go through the house, and led him through a long entrance passage and out at the back door. After walking a considerable distance, he saw another house, more magnificent than the former, where he saw through the open windows lamps burning in every room. He was about to knock, but looking in at the window of a low parlour, he saw, in the middle of the room, 
a large table of black marble, on which lay extended a monster of at least fourteen feet long, and ten round the body, with a sword beside him. He therefore deemed it prudent to make his way back to the first house, where the servant reconducted him, and informed him that if he had knocked at the second door, he never would have returned. He then took his leave, and once more ascended to the light of the sun. But, leaving rooms of this supernatural kind, we may allude to those which have acquired a strange notoriety from certain peculiarities of a somewhat gruesome nature, and, with tales of horror attached to their guilty walls, it is not surprising that many rooms in our old country houses have long been said to be troubled with mysterious noises, and to have an uncanny aspect. Why Collar Hall, near Colm, which was long the seat of the Cunliffs of Billington, had a room which the timid long avoided. Once a year, it is said, a spectre horseman visits this house, and makes his way up the broad oaken staircase into a certain room, from which dreadful screams, as from a woman, are heard, which soon subside into groans. The story goes that one of the Cunliffs murdered his wife in that room, and that the spectre horseman is the ghost of the murderer, who is doomed to pay an annual visit to the house of his victim, who is said to have predicted the extinction of the family, which has literally been fulfilled. This strange visitor is always attired in the costume of the early Stuart period, and the trappings of his horse are of a most uncouth description, the evening of his arrival being generally wild and tempestuous. At Creslow Manor House, Buckinghamshire, there is another mysterious room, which although furnished as a bedroom, is very rarely used, for it cannot be entered, even in the daytime, without trepidation and awe. According to common report, this room, which is situated in the most ancient portion of the building, is haunted by the restless spirit of a lady, long since deceased. What the antecedent history of this uncomfortable room really is, no one seems to know. Although it is generally agreed that in a distant past, it must have been the silent witness of some tragic occurrence. But Littlecote House, the ancient seat of the Darrells, is renowned, writes Lord Macaulay, not more on account of its venerable architecture and furniture than on account of a horrible and mysterious crime which was perpetrated there in the days of the Tudors. One of the bedchambers, which is said to have been the scene of a terrible murder, contains a bedstead with blue furniture, which time has made dingy and threadbare. In the bottom of one of the bed curtains is shown a strange place where a small piece has been cut out and sewn in again, a circumstance which served to identify the scene of a remarkable story, in connection with which, however, there are several discrepancies. According to one account, when Littlecote was in possession of its founders, the Darrells, a midwife of high repute dwelt in the neighbourhood, who on returning home from a professional visit at a late hour of the night, had gone to rest, only to be disturbed, by one who desired to have her immediate help, little anticipating the terrible night's adventure in store for her, and which shall be told in her own words. As soon as she had unfastened the door, a hand was thrust in, which struck down the candle, and at the same time pulled her into the road. The person who had used these abrupt means desired her to tie a handkerchief over her head and not wait for a hat, and leading her to a stile, where there was a horse saddled with a pillion on its back, he desired her to seat herself, and then mounting, they set off at a brisk trot. After travelling for an hour and a half, they entered a paved court, or yard, and her conductor, lifting her off her horse, led her into the house, 
and thus addressed her. You must now suffer me to put this cap and bandage over your eyes, which will allow you to breathe and speak, but not to see. Keep up your presence of mind, it will be wanted. No harm will happen to you. Then, taking her into a chamber, he added, Now you are in a room with a lady in labour. Perform your office well, and you shall be amply rewarded. But if you attempt to remove the bandage from your eyes, take the reward of your rashness. Shortly afterwards, a male child was born, and as soon as this crisis was over, the woman received a glass of wine and was told to prepare to return home, but in the interval she contrived to cut off a small piece of the bed-curtain, an act which was supposed sufficient evidence to fix the mysterious transaction as having happened at Littlecote. According to Sir Walter Scott, the bandage was first put over the woman's eyes on her leaving her own house, that she might be unable to tell which way she travelled, and was only removed when she was led into the mysterious bedchamber, where, beside the lady in labour, there was a man of a haughty and ferocious aspect. As soon as the child was born, adds Scott, he demanded the midwife to give it to him, and hurrying across the room threw it on the back of a fire that was blazing in the chimney, in spite of the piteous entreaties of the mother. Suspicion eventually fell on Darrell, whose house was identified by the midwife, and he was tried for murder at Salisbury. But by corrupting his judge, Sir John Popham, he escaped the sentence of the law, only to die a violent death by a fall from his horse. This tale of horror, it may be added, has been carefully examined, and there is little doubt but that in its main and most prominent features it is true, the bedstead with a piece of the curtain cut out, identifying the spot as the scene of the tragic act. With this strange story Sir Walter Scott compares a similar one, which was current at Edinburgh during his childhood, about the beginning of the eighteenth century when the large castles of the Scottish nobles, and even the secluded hotels like those of the French noblesse, which they possessed in Edinburgh, were sometimes the scenes of mysterious transactions. A divine of singular sanctity was called up at midnight to pray with a person at the point of death. He was put into a sedan-chair, and, after being transported to a remote part of the town, he was blindfolded, an act which was enforced by a cocked pistol. After many turns and windings, the chair was carried upstairs into a lodging, where his eyes were uncovered, and he was introduced into a bedroom, where he found a lady, newly delivered, of an infant. He was commanded by his attendants to say such prayers by a bedside, as were suitable for a dying person. On remonstrating and observing that her safe delivery warranted better hopes, he was sternly commanded to do as he had been ordered, and with difficulty he collected his thoughts sufficiently to perform the task imposed on him. He was then again hurried into the chair, but as they conducted him downstairs he heard the report of a pistol. He was safely conducted home, a purse of gold was found upon him, but he was warned that the least allusion to this transaction would cost him his life. He betook himself to rest, and after a deep sleep he was awakened by a servant, with the dismal news that a fire of uncommon fury had broken out in the house of near the head of the cannon gate, and that it was totally consumed with the shocking addition that the daughter of the proprietor, a young lady eminent for beauty and accomplishments, had perished in the flames. The clergyman had his suspicions. He was timid. The family was of the first distinction. Above all, the deed was done and could not be amended. Time wore away, but he became unhappy at being the solitary depository of this fearful mystery, and, mentioning it to some of his brethren, 
the anecdote acquired a sort of publicity. The divine, however, had been long dead, and the story in some degree forgotten, when a fire broke out again on the very same spot where the house of had formerly stood, and which was now occupied by buildings of an inferior description. When the flames were at their height, the tumult was suddenly suspended by an unexpected apparition. A beautiful female in a nightdress, extremely rich, but at least half a century old, appeared in the very midst of the fire, and uttered these words in her vernacular idiom. Ants burned, twice burned, the third time I'll scare you all. The belief in this apparition was formerly so strong, that on a fire breaking out and seeming to approach the fatal spot, there was a good deal of anxiety manifested, lest the apparition should make good her denunciation. But family romance contains many such tales of horror, and one told of Sir Richard Baker, surnamed Bloody Baker, is a match even for Bluebeard's locked chamber. After spending some years abroad in consequence of a duel, he returned to his old home at Cranbrook in Kent. He only brought with him a foreign servant, and these two lived alone. Very soon strange stories began to be whispered of unearthly shrieks having been frequently heard at nightfall to issue from his house, and of persons who were missed, and never heard of again. But it never occurred to anyone to connect incidents of this kind with Sir Richard Baker, until one day he formed an apparent attachment to a young lady in the neighbourhood, who always wore a great number of jewels. He had often pressed her to call and see his house, and happening to be near it, she determined to surprise him with a visit. Her companion tried to dissuade her from doing so, but she would not be turned from her purpose. They knocked at the door, but receiving no answer, determined to enter. At the head of the staircase hung a parrot, which on their passing cried out, Peepot! Pretty lady, be not too bold, or your red blood will soon run cold. And the blood of the adventurous women did run cold, when on opening one of the room doors they found it nearly full of the bodies of murdered persons, chiefly women, and when too, on looking out of the window, they saw Bloody Baker and his servant bringing in the body of a lady. Paralysed with fear, they concealed themselves in a recess under the staircase, and as the murderers with their ghastly burden passed by, the hand of the murdered lady hung in the baluster of the stairs, which, on Baker chopping it off with an oath, fell into the lap of one of the concealed ladies. They quickly made their escape with the dead hand, on one of the fingers of which was a ring. Reaching home, they told the story, and in proof of it displayed the ring, Families in the neighbourhood, who had lost friends or relatives mysteriously, were told of this blood-chamber of horrors, and it was arranged to ask Baker to a party, apparently in a friendly manner, but to have constables concealed ready to take him into custody. He accepted the invitation, and then the lady, pretending it was a dream, told him all she had seen. "'Fair lady,' said he, "'dreams are nothing. They are but fables.' They may be fables, she replied, but is this a fable? And she produced the hand and ring, upon which the constables appeared on the scene and took Baker into custody. The tradition adds that he was found guilty and was burnt, notwithstanding that Queen Mary tried to save him on account of his holding the Roman Catholic religion. This tradition, of course, must not be taken too seriously. The red hand in the armorial bearings having led, 
it has been suggested, to the supposition of some sanguinary business in the records of the family. Among the monuments in Cranbrook Church, Kent, there is one erected to Sir Richard Baker, the gauntlet, red gloves, helmet and spurs having been suspended over the tomb. On one occasion, a visitor being attracted by the colour of the gloves, was accosted by an old woman, who remarked, "'Aye, miss, those are bloody baker's gloves. Their red colour comes from the blood he shed.' But the red hand is only the Ulster badge of baronetcy, and there is scarcely a family bearing it of which some tale of murder and punishment has not been told. End of chapter 5